Good afternoon, everyone. I want to read something to you before we get started here. This is from um, William Shakespeare's play Hamlet. It's in Act 2, Scene 1. And as I was on my way here this afternoon, it popped into my mind, uh, considering the topic uh, of today's talk from John Clayton. It says, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty, in form, in moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? And I don't know, we're certainly not going to take time to pull that apart uh, today, but it's a commentary on the uniqueness uh, of man. It may be overstated in some cases, um, and it may be understated in some cases. Uh, paragon of animals. Uh, John Clayton is going to talk to us today uh, about man. What is man? What is man according to <clears throat> scientists? who have attempted to describe him in scientific ways and in ways that link us to um, animals and not something distinct from animals. And so uh, he is going to uh, show us how uh, man is unique and that uniqueness hinges upon that piece in Genesis um, 2, I believe, where it says, uh, let us make man in our own image. And that's Genesis 1, isn't it? 127, I believe. Um, and so we are in the image of God. And he explores what does that mean. Um, and then he talks about a considerable number of other things as well. Uh, so we're going to start uh, with this uh, lesson, lesson number 10, What is Man? by John Clayton. to program number 10 in our video series on the existence of God. We've made an argument for the existence of God which did not involve the Bible. We have looked at what properties God needs to have. The, not only the concept of his capacity to design and to intelligently put together the creation around us and create us as well, but also the concept that God has to be outside of space and time. That his nature has to be beyond the three-dimensional world or the four-dimensional world that we experience. But how then are we created in God's image? I can come back to the point that, that God is not a Caucasian, blue-eyed, white-haired, old man in the sky. That model is a human model. It's inconsistent with the Bible. It's inconsistent with common sense. God is a spirit. So how are we created in the image of God? 
Because the Bible says we are. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. One of the unique things about the biblical account is that man and woman are stated as being of equal value, of equal nature. So what does that mean? L let me point out to you one thing it clearly does not mean. Here is a picture which has been created in my image. And here is another picture that has been created in my image. Both pictures were created in my image. So what's true of the pictures? Yeah, I know. My kids tell me, yeah, well, they're double ugly for one thing. Well, all right. That's not the point of discussion here. The point is they are identical, aren't they? They look alike. And that's pretty obviously what it means to say that something is the image of something else. It looks like the thing it's in the image of. Now think. Think, 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 think. If we are created in the image of God, if I am created in the image of God, and if you are created in the image of God, then what should be true of you and me? Yeah, we'd be identical twins, wouldn't we? But you don't look like me. You're not bald and fat and ugly. Why not? And I know you're thinking of someone you know who is bald and fat and ugly besides me. But the point is, we are not identical twins. So clearly that cannot be what the Bible is attempting to convey to us. We don't physically look like God because God is not a physical being, because we would be identical twins if we were, and because it reduces the concept of God to a totally anthropomorphic concept, to a totally human concept. So how then are we created in the image of God? Here's a little chart of the different words in the Bible that are translated God. We've made reference to this occasionally, although we really haven't discussed it to the depth we are right now. The point is, first of all, that each of these words conveys some particular aspect of God's being. Elohim was used by the Hebrews when they were talking about the power of God, the strength of God, the majesty of God. When they were talking about God's promises, then Yahweh was used. If they're talking about the ruler aspect of God, and particularly when it's talking about God's sovereign rule in a political sense, then the word Adonai is used. And you can see in the chart the number of times that it's used and the places where you can look at it and see in the Genesis record itself. The point I want to make in this discussion is that the word Elohim is used exclusively in the first chapter of Genesis. And it is a plural word. Now there's a singular word for God, El, but it's not used until you get clear over to the 14th chapter. Elohim is used exclusively in the first chapter of Genesis and it conveys a particular aspect of God's power, God's strength, God's majesty. Now, I might add here that Yahweh is used in the second chapter, but what is involved in the second chapter is not the creative process as much as the relationship of man and woman. If you'll notice, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The, the statement is a promise of God for the relationship of man and woman. 
So a different word is used. And I would suggest to you it's not because there were different authors for chapter 1 and chapter 2, as some of the documentary hypothesis advocates have maintained. Years ago, there were a couple of young boys that were walking in a field in France, and as they went across this field in the dead of winter, they noticed some steam coming up from an area surrounded by trees in the middle of this field. Now, if you've lived in a karst topography, as I have, where there's lots and lots of caves, you know what that means. There's a cave down there, a big cave. And hot air coming out of the cave is what produces the moisture. So they moved some of the rocks, they went down into the cave, and when they turned on the lights that they had brought from home and looked, here's what they saw. A little further in the cave. A little further in the cave. These are beautiful drawings. Picasso went into the Cormanian caves, came out and said, we have learned nothing about art in our entire history. Everything you learned about art in art appreciation classes in these drawings, syntax, structure, abstraction, form, Remember all that? And they're pretty good technically, too. These guys got paintings to stay on the walls of wet caves for thousands of years. I can't get paint to stay in my house six months. This is no dummy. This is a highly advanced individual that created beautiful works of art that even to this day we can look at, we can appreciate, we can understand, we can know what was important to them, the message that they were conveying. You know what happens when you give a crayon or a paintbrush to a chimpanzee? He eats it. He doesn't sit down and express himself artistically. What is it in man that has caused him in his earliest days to express himself in art? Have you ever heard of a chimpanzee writing a protest song? What is it in man that causes him to express himself in music? What is it in man from his earliest days that has caused him to express himself in worship? Why does man worship God anyway? However misinformed that worship might have been. You know, it's interesting that atheists have addressed this. Bertrand Russell said one time, the center of me is always an internally a terrible pain, a curious wild pain. A searching for something beyond what the world holds. Something transfigured and infinite. The beatific vision. God. It's interesting because Russell went on and said, I do not find it. I do not think it is to be found. But the love of it is my life. It's like the passionate love for a ghost. It fills every passion I have. It is the actual spring of life in me. Well, I suggest to you he didn't find it because he didn't look for it. He was not open to the concept. He, he viewed it as being something like a ghost. The next discussion is, well, then where does this come from? Somebody says, well, uh, that's because we're so smart. It's a brain thing. And there's even been discussion recently uh, about whether there's a section of the brain that causes us to worship. And you would wonder why that wasn't at least in part present in other higher forms of life that have very big brains. But I can prove to you it's not a function of intelligence. Meet my son Tim when he was three years old. My son Tim is a mentally challenged adult these days. 
When Tim was born, he was pronounced a normal newborn. But we have come to understand not too long after his birth that he was victimized by a number of things which caused him to not only be mentally challenged, but to have a number of physical problems as well. Tim has never scored better than a 52 on an IQ test. An IQ tests are all over the board, but those that are verbally linked, he scores in the 50s. Those that are not based upon verbal cognizance areas, he's in the 40s. So he doesn't have a lot of intelligence is the point. But you know what? If you visit our home and if you eat a meal with us, you'll find Tim leading us in prayer. He's always been the most spiritual of my three children and has gone far beyond anything that we might have passed on to him since he left our home and began living on his own. You give Tim a crayon and a piece of paper, he'll draw a beautiful picture. Here's a picture Tim drew when he was about 16 years old. Now, that... that it's not too hot for a 16-year-old kid, but I think you can make out the flowers. I think you can make out the apple tree. I think you can make out the rabbit right there near the apple tree. And then off to the upper right, the neighbor's cat. Hopefully not to scale, but I think you can recognize it. Now let me give you a little comparison. There's a gorilla at Stanford University by the name of Coco. Coco has mastered the sign language of the deaf. There have been a number of articles that have suggested that Coco's IQ on a human scale runs in the 90s. Around 95, he seems to average on various IQ tests. So he's a very intelligent animal. Does he demonstrate the capacities about which we are talking? And there has been a rather concerted effort to maintain that he does. Is Coco an artist? Interesting experiment was done here by his trainer. His trainer asked him to draw a picture. And what she did was that she put a, a canvas up in front of him. She hit it with a, a, a paintbrush for a few minutes. And then she handed the gorilla a yellow paintbrush. And the gorilla copied what he had seen her do. And he marked the canvas a couple of times with a yellow paintbrush. When he finished that, she pointed to the screen and signed banana to the gorilla in the sign language of the deaf. The gorilla signed banana back. Sometime later, she brought that canvas up and held it in front of the gorilla. The gorilla pointed to the yellow marks on the canvas and signed banana. And the trainer suggests that this is a artistic form, that the gorilla has expressed himself in art. Now, the problem, I think, with this is that when someone walks into the gorilla's cage wearing a yellow smile button, the gorilla will point to the smile button and sign banana. When someone walks in, you are in a yellow tie, he will point to the yellow tie and sign banana. National Geographic had an article about a yellow kitten that was presented to the gorilla as uh, something it, it could love. And the gorilla pointed to the yellow kitten and guess what it signed? I was doing a youth rally some years ago and one young man in the back jumped up and yelled, lunch! <laughs> no, not lunch. Banana. And I suggest to you that the gorilla is doing a very solid demonstration here of good old-fashioned Pavlovian conditioning. He has been conditioned to recognize and associate yellow with banana. This is not artistic form. 
Thorndike has shown that experiments done with chimpanzees and the amount of time that was involved in the chimpanzees actually going through that training, if applied to pigeons, the pigeons with the same amount of training could do the same sort of thing. I suggest to you that there is no evidence that the human capacity to express in art, to express in music, to worship God, to feel guilt, to be sympathetic. None of the things about which we are talking are a function of intelligence. Intelligent animals do not do the things about which I am talking. Many mentally challenged adults, humans, do. And you say, well, what's this guilt thing? Well, let, let me give you an example of this. Let's suppose that you get home after work someday and you find that your dog has chewed up your favorite pair of slippers. And you roll up a newspaper and you bring it up ready to whack the dog with it and you are confronted with this. Now, what's going on here? Is this dog overwhelmed with some compelling sense of guilt? I suggest to you he's learned you don't hit him so hard if he looks pathetic enough. That's a conditioned response. Your dog doesn't feel guilty when he bites the postman. He doesn't have any sympathy for the cat he runs up a tree next door for the 35th time. Animals do not have the capacity for forgiveness that Jesus demonstrated hanging on the cross and that some humans have demonstrated who are Christians on this earth. I'm sure you've seen the stories about a woman whose son was murdered by a man and she forgave the man and actually eventually took the man in to her home. And you can attempt to denigrate those kinds of stories when they come out. The fact of the matter is, I have personally seen people who had that capacity for forgiveness. You don't see that on my animals. We have a word to describe all these capabilities. The word that we use is the word soul. Your soul is that part of you created in the image of God. It is that part of you which gives you the capacity to express yourself in art, in music, in worship, that enables you to have the capacity to feel guilt, to be sympathetic. It's not a function of your brain. It's not a function of your intelligence. It is a function of the fact that you are created in the image of God. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Man does things that are not just physical responses to the world in which he lives. And the suggestion of this passage is that what God would do, what Jesus would do, what Jesus would have us do in circumstances that we see on the earth is related to and is carried out by our spiritual makeup, by the fact that we are created in the image of God. This is a biblical definition. There are other definitions out there. If you take a course in physical anthropology, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to use a rather famous mural here that was put out by Time Live many, many, many years ago. I use this not because it is something that scientists would suggest is still the understanding, not because it contains valid scientific evidence, but because the media has picked it up and used it in so many illustrations. Well, what's interesting is that the criteria that was used in this material, and what I think you would see in most modern discussions of this subject, is a list of characteristics like this. Man is defined as an animal, 
And then the characteristics are given as properties. One of those things would be the size of the brain. One of those things would be the sagittal crest. You'll notice in this skull, there's a ridge on the top of the skull. In apes, that ridge is connected to the lower jaw by muscles, which give the animal a stronger bite. Man does not depend upon that kind of strength in the lower jaw, therefore there is no sagittal crest, no ridge on the top of the skull. You can talk about the opening into the brain through the skull. In the case of man, it's in the bottom of the skull, geometrically centered on the skull. So my head sits on the two axes of my body, as you can see. So I don't need a big neck muscle back there to hold my head up. Now, in a dog, that's not the case. In a dog, the skull is out in front of the spinal column. So if my fist represents the skull, the spinal column comes in this way and the opening into the skull is back here, not on the bottom. That hump on the neck of the German Shepherd before he tears your leg off is that muscle there to hold up the skull because of the position of the foramen magnum. Now, if you look at the skull of an ape, and you can see that in the upper right-hand corner of these three skulls, Notice the foramen magnum is not as much in the center as the human skull on the bottom is, and it's not as far back as the dog's. So that individual would have a knuckle-walking capacity. It would travel on his hind legs and on his knuckles. So an anthropologist might be digging in Africa someplace. He finds a skull. He flips it over. He looks at the foramen magnum. Where the foramen magnum is would determine whether the specimen would be classified as man or not. If it's geometrically in the center of the skull, aha, this is man. If it's somewhere else, you can say a lot of things, but you can't say it's man, because for it to be man, it has to be erect, and to be erect, the prominent magnum has to be in the center of the skull. But these are physical characteristics. Physical characteristics. You could talk about the shape of the upper jaw. Is it C-shaped, like a human, V-shaped, like a monkey, or box-shaped, like an ape? What about the tooth pattern? I've often used this in sort of a flippant way, but here's a, here's a, a student of mine in my second hour of physics class with her mouth in normal position. Yeah, I know. Sexist remark and so forth, but it, it, it's a good discussion regardless of who you put on or just a question of who you want to bite on. The point is, there's a 2 one 2 3 tooth pattern in the structure. That means there are two corn on the cob type teeth, one dagger-shaped tooth, two premolars, three molars. An anthropologist finds a jawbone in South Africa. He looks at the tooth pattern. If he sees a 2 one 2 3 tooth pattern, he'll say it's man. They would even use the shape of a tooth. The the pattern of the cusp within a tooth, which leads to charts like this, in which everybody would be identified as early man because everybody identifies or possesses at least one of the 15 criteria about which we have been talking. Now, I want you to notice something here. This is a physical anthropological definition of man. There are other definitions of man. Someone interested in cultural anthropology would use a different definition of man. <clears throat> there was a time when the ability to make tools was used to define man, and then they discovered that chimpanzees could take pointed sticks and fish ants out of holes in trees.
they found birds that would drop the eggs of other birds to get at what was inside. So you had to either change your definition of man or you had to invite all animals to the United Nations. And, and the point is that the definition is a physical definition. The biblical definition that says that man is created in the image of God is based upon a completely different set of criteria. Now, the question is, does it make any difference what your definition is? And I suggest to you that it does. If you accept this definition, man is that animal, and then give a set of physical characteristics. If your view of man is that man's past is totally an animal past, that the only thing that, that separates you from your dog are the mutations that have occurred in your ancestors and how the environment has worked on those mutations, then as Carl Sagan said so eloquently shortly before he died, we are nothing special. And ladies and gentlemen, if we are nothing special, and I submit to you everything Adolf Hitler did perhaps makes sense. If all we are is a naked ape, if the only thing that distinguishes you from your dog are the mutations that have occurred in your ancestors and how the environment has worked on those mutations, then let's kill off everybody that's not super beautiful. Let's kill off everybody that's not super handsome. Let's kill off everybody that has too much hair on their head. Okay, did you get the point? And let's build the super race. And if you don't think that Nazi Germany was rooted in this kind of thinking, you need to look at how they justified the extermination of tens of thousands of human beings, and especially at the philosophical statements that led to the imposition of that kind of mentality, and see how they justified it. If you believe that someone is created in the image of God, then you're constrained to believe that that individual has value. As a Christian, I have to believe that you are the most important thing on this earth, whether you agree with me or not. As a Christian, I have to believe you have intrinsic inherent worth. I don't care about your race. I don't care about your sex. I don't care about your education. I don't care about your intelligence. I don't care about your money. I don't even care what you've done. You are the most important thing on this planet because you are uniquely and specially created in the image of God. That, and that alone, makes you of intrinsic inherent worth. Let me give you a personal illustration to show you why I think this is so important. I taught for 41 years in an inner city public high school. I got involved with many of the problems that the students that I had in my classroom had. And I realized early in my teaching experience that one of the difficulties that young people had was that they didn't always have access to help when they needed it. So I started running a tutorial in my classroom every day. Starting at 6 o'clock a.m., kids could come in and get help with their physics, with their chemistry, with their science classes, with their math classes. I didn't get into English, but I did the, the science things and the math things. And sometimes I was there by myself. Sometimes the room was full, right before finals, for example. But one year, right before Christmas vacation, I was, came to my room early and, and the door was open. And that was a no-no. Uh, the high school I taught in had a lot of gang violence around it. There were lots of concerns. We weren't supposed to go into a room that we had suspicions might have some problems within it. But it was 
6 o'clock a.m. There's no security around. I'm not going to wait around for the school to start functioning. I went in the room and flipped on the lights and immediately became aware that there was someone sitting in the first lab station, one of my students, a girl named Heather. And I turned to look at her. I found myself looking down the barrel of a 45 caliber revolver. And before I could blink, she said, don't worry, Mr. C, this is not for you. And she turned the gun around and put it in her mouth. Well, we've had some training in what we're supposed to do in situations like that, so I did what the book said I was supposed to do. I backed up and said, now, wait a minute, Heather, I don't understand. What's going on? What's brought you to this? What, what's happened? And she lowered the gun. She said, all right, I'll tell you what's happened. Said, I'm nothing special. Remember the statement of Carl Sagan? I'm nothing special. And all that happens to me with men is bad stuff. And I don't want to live in a world like this. I don't want to be in a place where all this bad stuff happens. I want out of here, and nothing you can say is going to change my mind. And she put the gun back in her mouth. And I said, No, wait a minute, Heather. Wait, 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 wait. I said, You're not making any sense. I said, Heather, you're a beautiful woman. You're gorgeous. I said, Heather, you're one of my best students. You, you, you've got a, a good grade going in my physics class here right now. You, you're very intelligent. I've never heard anybody in this school say anything bad about you. Not, not parents, not kids, not teachers. What's going on? She lowered the gun. She said, all right, I'll tell you what's going on. She said, you know what happened. My mom and dad got divorced in August. And I said, oh, yeah, Heather, but lots of kids. She waved me off. She said, when I came home last night, my mother's new boyfriend raped me. And I said, oh, man, oh, Heather, that's awful. Heather, that's just terrible. Oh, I feel so... But Heather, she waved me off again. So I ran to my dad's house, she says. And she turned her face, and the whole right side of her face was bruised and cut from her father's fist. She said, Mr. C, he says it's my fault. She says, I don't want to live in a place like this. I don't want to be a place like this. I want out of here. And she put the gun back in her mouth. And I dropped to my knees. And I said to this young lady, Heather, listen to me. Heather, please, just listen to me. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to rush you. Just listen to me. I said, Heather, you're beautiful. No, I'm not. Heather, you're beautiful. No, I'm not. We did that. Half a dozen times. I said, Heather, you're beautiful. Because you're created in the image of God. And that makes you beautiful. That makes you special. I said, Heather, you have an eternal soul that can live forever. And nobody can do anything to you to take that away from you. I said, Heather, the Bible says that God can take something awful and make something good come out of it. Read Romans 8.28. But I said, Heather, maybe this can help you find God. Maybe this can help you find what you want to do with your life. But Heather, please. And I would beg any woman, any man that's been through something like this, please, don't pull the trigger. And by the way, whether it's a gun or drugs or booze or sex, don't pull the trigger. Now you know and I know she wasn't 
there that morning to pull the trigger. She wants to blow herself away. She doesn't have to come to school, does she? I think she was looking for answers. She didn't pull the trigger. A year and a half later, I sat in her box at commencement and watched her graduate from high school. She didn't invite her parents, her family. She's attending a major university as I speak. She's majoring in psychology. She wants to work with battered and abused women and children. As a matter of fact, I, I got an email not too long before I'm making this video. She, she sent one of those flashing emails, said, had a date. Nothing bad happened. Not all, and the all was flashing different colors. Men are pigs. <laughs> she's going to make it. She's become a Christian. She knows what she's going to do with her life. But I tell you that story to say to you, how you view the value of a human being does make a difference. It does matter what we understand man to be. And I submit to you, you're not a naked ape. You're a human being, uniquely and specially created in the image of God. You have an eternal soul that can live forever and never die. Do you believe that? Are you really willing to believe that you're nothing more than a bunch of accidents, just an animal, like any other animal, of no more value than a cockroach or a mouse? <clears throat> or do you believe that you are uniquely and specially created in the image of God with a purpose, with a reason? In our next presentation, we want to talk about what that reason, what that purpose might be. Very good. Thought in that presentation there. Um, one of the things I thought about while he was uh, talking there uh, about his son, uh, Tim, and he bundled intelligence all into one package. And um, I don't know where the study of uh, intelligence is right now. I have not looked at it or followed it in a number of years, but I believe it was John Gardner or Howard Gardner, one of the two, that came up with this um, theory that intelligence is not measured by how much you know or how much you are able to do with a specific uh, feature or aspect of your brain. He says, but there are multiple intelligences. and um, he says that uh, there are people who, who have spatial intelligence. There are people who, who, uh, who have what he would call, I think, a spiritual intelligence. He said that, that Tim's spirituality had, had exceeded all of theirs. So it could be that he had a spiritual intelligence um, that, was, uh, that characterized him differently than other people. So... Um, you know, when people start talking about um, intelligence and smartness as, as indicated by uh, various degrees or accomplishments or something, I always say there are all kinds of smarts and not everybody possesses all kinds of smarts. And you know that in your life. You know individuals who have very little formal education and they can do things... <laughs> that I can never even think about doing 
from an artistic standpoint, from a uh, mechanical as, uh, standpoint, or anything like that. So um, I, I just wanted to make that point um, uh, about what he said about his about his son Tim. So um, I thought the statement he made uh, uh, about the Hebrew language and about how uh, the word uh, God or the word they selected to represent God in Scripture, primarily in Genesis, <clears throat> was determined uh, based on what particular feature of God or characteristic of God or attitude of God was being conveyed at the time. And he had that chart, uh, the blue chart there that, would, that laid that out. And uh, it is amazing that as interesting and diverse and complex as our American or our English language is, um, some of the older languages have it all over us uh, for clarity uh, purposes. Uh, and we commonly pull out the word love. We have, we have one word, love, and it can mean I love this, uh, I love that, you know, I, I, I love my family, I love food. You know, though, and there are different types of love that we bundle all into that one word, love. And I think in Greek, what is it, eight? Eight different, four, at least four different uh, words uh, for love that convey to the reader of the New Testament what particular type of love is being uh, expressed at that point. And I don't mean to go into that. It's just interesting that that uh, we haven't learned. In fact, we have made our, our English language even more confusing. Uh, the fact that we adopt... And, and every year you hear of words that they drop out of the dictionary and words that they add into the dictionary. And it just seems like we're going in a more complex direction than a more refined direction as far as that con is concerned. He talked about the um, distinctions uh, between man and animal from the, uh, the guilt, the sympathy, uh, the artistic, the use of tools, and you know all of those types of things, and uh, said that man remains distinct in several key features. And his point in all of that, obviously, was animals. Nowhere in Genesis does it say that any of the animals were created in the image of God. When it talks about the creation of man, however, he does say that man, let us make man in our own image. And it's not a physical image. God is not a physical entity. God is a spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. He talked about uh, this image that we are made in um, with reference to God as our soul. And uh, I have always thought that at least a portion of that is our capacity to seek what uh, I can't remember who it was that he said was this this constant unachievable goal of seeking that which uh, filled him and I would say and I think uh, John Clayton would say you're seeking God and he is findable you just haven't looked in the right places or you are blinded by preconceived notions that will not allow you to see uh, see the truth. And our soul is that 
which is in us that allows us to seek a higher being, seek an answer for why we are here, seek something or someone to worship that I believe is part of the, of the human uh, condition, the, the human spirit, the human soul, if, they, if that's indeed what it is. He also pointed out the, uh, and, and I, I, let's see, 40-some years ago, 50-some years ago, how many ever years ago it was that I was in, in high school and, and uh, first encountered uh, those charts that, that appeared, as he said, in Time magazine, I believe, um, about the ascent of man moving from a chimpanzee up through those multiple whatever they were um, until you, you came to man. And uh, I liked... I liked his I liked his statement that man is more than just actions that are he is more than not just physical responses to living on the earth mutations and and circumstances that take him from one level of animal existence to the next to the next to the next and and he will talk I believe he talks more uh, about how uh, flawed those those theories are uh, with evidence from science itself um, in, in later later episodes. He talked about the definition of man and uh, how we characterize man through various characteristics that, that man possesses and that if we find a jawbone that has a two, one, two, three pattern or whatever that is, uh, that it's automatically um, uh, a man as opposed to an animal or if we find something else, it's automatically characterized as or cataloged as an animal as opposed to a man. And he also talked about the, uh, the physical and the cultural um, anthropology as well, making tools and that kind of argument. <clears throat> the Bible talks about the intrinsic value uh, of man. Uh, ha man has an inherent worth that... Um, is not found in animals because man has a soul. He talked about Heather, uh, the experience that he had uh, with Heather, and that he tried to convince her that she had value. And and if, if there was anything that he drove home more than once, it was this notion of human beings have inherent value because they have souls and because they are created in the image of God. So, in my life at one point, well, let me, let me say this. I had been raised in a middle-class, white, uh, Christian home, I and my brother. And our experiences tend to shape our worldview and how we uh, view uh, others and circumstances in life. And there is, is, I think, the natural tendency to think that, well, everyone thinks like I do, and everyone has had the same background that I have had, and so we all ought to be, you know, on the same page. And when someone is not on the same page, 
there's something wrong with them. They're just trying to be jerks or they're just trying to be different or there's something maybe even, you know, maybe mentally uh, wrong with them. And I, I think I, I maintained those, uh, at least generally, those, those attitudes up through a certain point in my life when, when three events came together at the same time. First of all, I, was, uh, I had the opportunity to spend a day in a session talking about uh, the different personalities that individuals have. And uh, it, was, it was entirely revealing. I didn't realize at that point that um, there were four basic personality styles and those every individual is a unique combination of each of those four styles with some of us way over here on this side, some of us on this side, some of us uh, you know a unique blend, um, a balanced blend of all of those things and that's what determines how we look at the world, how we take in information, how we translate that information into meaning for us and then how we use that information um, as as we go out into the world. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Um, the point that the person who was conducting it made was everyone is different, and that is good. Because with our uniqueness, with our specific uh, makeup that we have with our personality, we bring to the table things that maybe someone else doesn't. And her whole point was, if you are a leader, you might want to consider building whole brain teams rather than just those individuals who volunteer all the time. If you want to assign a committee to look at something uh, over here uh, in your organization, um, find out, first of all, what their personalities are because each of them, if you can, can have a group to draw from, can contribute unique things to that process that'll make the outcome even better. I also had a student in one of my classes, one of my graduate classes, Mike Peterson, who was an assistant principal at a high school down outside of New Orleans. And uh, we were talking about discipline. And, and I said, you know, everyone knows what the rules are. If you make the rules clear and they know that if they break the rules, this is going to be the punishment, then there shouldn't be any problem with administering that punishment. And he came up after class and he says, Dr. Keister, not everybody's like that. That doesn't work for everybody. And I said, why not? It's as logical as it can be. You can tell which half of my brain I uh, live on. And he said, um, tell you a quick story. Came out of the high school, student sitting there, had been in detention, missed the late bus. And I said, hop in the car, I'll take you home. Go out in the country. He says, you can let me out here. And I said, no, I have to take you to your house. I can't let you out here in the middle. No, so he drives down another, a little bit further down the road. He said, you can let me out here. And I said, there's not a house here. And he points down to a tent by a pond down at the bottom of, of the meadow there. And he says, that's my house. And he says, Dr. Keister, he said, people come from all sorts of backgrounds. And we can't expect them to have the same attitudes that we have toward rules and regulations because their world doesn't have those. And then the third thing is I ran across uh, a story and I'm going to, now it's on YouTube, and I'm going to have Chris turn this on and, and let you watch this. It's about judging others 
by their actions. And let's see if we can learn something from this. And then I'll come back and make some final conclusions.
Well, that's a nice little story, isn't it? Um, if you had, if the camera had been on me, you would have seen that I was staring at the wall because uh, a while ago at the house when I went through that video, um, I teared up like you probably did. Um, it's a very moving uh, story. And if you go and check it out, some say that it was made up and, and um, others say, no, it really happened. I don't know the truth of that. Um, I don't care if it was made up. Um, it illustrates a very important point. And that point, obviously, is that um, there are reasons why people behave the way they do. And we should as fair, as non-judgmental people of God conduct our lives in a fashion where we give people the benefit of the doubt. If someone displays what we might call uh, unacceptable or aberrant behavior uh, in a given situation or just overall there are probably reasons why they behave that way that we're not privy to. And for us to make judgments about their character or their judgment or their actions in some way without all of the facts puts us in a very um, untenable position of judging people, which is God's domain, without all the facts. True, on occasion, we may um, misjudge someone by giving them too much credit. Maybe they were just being a jerk, or maybe they were just uh, acting out when they should have uh, controlled themselves or something like that. But I guarantee you that I would rather misjudge somebody in that direction than I would in the other direction. And when those three events occurred um, in my life, I said, I'm going to change. Um, I've been in committee meetings where um, a faculty member or something is railing against a, a, a dean or a pres university president or something like that. And I will say, well, we don't have all the facts. You know, maybe they're this and maybe they're that. And I've had people say, Rick, quit making excuses for them. So be it. I will attempt to justify other people's behavior in any way that I can in order to cut them some slack because I don't know what's causing that behavior. And I think if all of us did that, I think we would have better impressions of each of us as we go through this life. And like I say, if we give somebody too much credit, so be it. I don't want to be guilty of misjudging them in that other direction. Every person has value. Believe that. But more importantly, live that in your actions. And that's all I have to say today.